Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Sara Vishnubhakt, Professor of Law and Engineering at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Samantha Zients, a postdoctoral research fellow in intellectual property at Stanford Law School and a fellow of the Stanford Center for Law and the Biosciences. We'll be discussing her new article, co-authored with Mark Lemley, Does Alice Target Patent Trolls? Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I'd like to begin our conversation uh, the same way I always do when the title of the paper poses this kind of question. So, Sam, yes or no, does the Alice decision, in fact, target patent trolls? I'm going to give you the true economist answer. It depends. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think I think in general the answer is is not as we would hope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in terms so, of it. yeah, uh, as 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 many of our listeners who are not immersed in patent law, uh, you know, may may not know about this. Let's uh, talk about Alice as a starting point, and then sort of more delve more deeply into you know what the expectation might have been. So Alice, of course, was a case uh, about a patent that the USPTO did, in fact, grant on computer programs and electronic methods of reducing settlement risk in financial trading. And the Supreme Court held the patent invalid as ineligible subject matter. So what does that, uh, what does that mean? What does uh, patent ineligibility uh, or eligibility, uh, can you sort of sum that up for us as a starting point? Uh, sure. Uh, basically, the idea is that uh, under the Constitution, uh, Section Eight, I believe, uh, we, you know, we are given rights to own uh, patents or you know have rights on particular ideas as defined in a patent document. But uh, under uh, the, in the U.S. Code, especially under what's known as Section One Hundred One, there's a list of things that are deemed patentable, but there are a few things that are not, which, you know, include, you know, abstract ideas or natural phenomena. Um, So, you know, we can publish, you know, we can basically patent almost anything, but, you know, you can't patent a mushroom that you found on the ground, right? Uh, Or, or you can't, you can't patent a, you know, naturally occurring sequence of uh, a genome for per per se, although there's some uh, exceptions to that. Um, but you know, what, what Alice did was kind of resurrect, or I should say about 10, four years before that, uh, Bilski started to resurrect the idea that, um, you know, well, maybe, maybe we've been a little too broad about what is patent eligible and we need to start thinking a little bit more about, you know, are we allowing too many things to go through and should we redefine what it means to be eligible? Um, and, uh, there's you know some back and forth that went on over the next couple of years, uh, culminating in the Alice case, which is uh, <clears throat> Alice Corp versus CLS, CLS Bank. Um, and as you said, you know it invalidated the patent. But what Alice actually gave us was basically uh, a two-part test uh, that the district courts then now need to be able to use uh, in order to determine what truly is patent eligible under Section 101. Um, and this, this allows, or the idea was it would allow us to sort of narrow down, okay, you know, what is an abstract idea? And that's the first kind of step of the test, which is, you know, is there a claim, is the claim that we're talking about directed to an abstract idea? Um, and we'll get into it for in a second about like how complicated even that is. Um, and 
the idea is, even if it is directed to an abstract idea, the second step then says, okay, but even if it is, does the claim include some kind of quote unquote inventive step beyond this abstract idea or natural phenomenon? Mm -hmm. Um, And in theory, great, we now have a test. We can actually like go through each stage and say, all right, you know, is it an abstract idea? And if it is, is there this inventive step? Uh, The problem we run into, uh, as I'm seeing uh, in the decisions that we've read for this paper, um, the definition of abstract idea and inventive step aren't exactly straightforward. (laughs) And so it resulted... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it resulted in just a ton of confusion, uh, both within the courts, in the patent offices, and of course to patent holders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in the the attempt, basically, to clean this up, I think we might have made more of a mess. Um, (laughs) uh, And and it led to an awful lot of debating over whether or not this two-step Alice test was a good thing or not. Okay. Um, So analytically, then, this two-step test gives us a way to figure out uh, whether the rest of the the patentability requirements uh, should matter, it seems to me. Because, of course, if there's, you know, if in step one, the invention is not directed to an abstract idea or uh, a natural phenomenon, as you said, or a product of nature like the mushroom, then no problem at all. You're just squarely within what the statute says is patent eligible. But if it is directed toward one of those uh, exceptions, then you might still be able to get out of it if there is this step two additional inventive uh, content uh, that the patent is seeking. And that might be a way, a safety valve out. And then you go on to the to the remaining things. But of course, you're right. The, the term abstract idea, natural phenomenon, there's case law on this, but they're not self-defining terms. And the, the content of these exceptions might be understood to change over time as well. Um, so let's let's talk now specifically about the technology that was at issue in Alice. This was a computer uh, mediated algorithm, and algorithms, of course, are the kinds of inventions that are most frequently, uh, you know, sort of implicated when you're talking about the abstract idea ex- uh, exception. And uh, I guess dating roughly from the dot com boom. Um, which seems, you know, so long ago now, uh, there's been, uh, I think, significant upheaval in patent eligibility doctrine uh, at all levels of, of the courts, the Congress, this sort of thing. And the pendulum has swung in some sense in both directions until the Supreme Court in the last decade started taking up these issues. You pointed out the, the case of Bilski versus Kapos from 2010. And then there were uh, further cases um which, which ultimately culminated in Alice. So what is it that made Alice so special in that historical arc? I mean, is it simply that it's the most recent word of the Supreme Court? Well, by now it's not the most recent, um, but I, I would say that it, it certainly is one of the ones that got the most intention. I'll, I'll admit that I don't I don't have an opinion on exactly why it was this particular technology that you know triggered uh, uh, triggered the test. Um, mm-hmm. And to some degree, 
you know, the ALICE test itself is now being applied to all different kinds of areas. So it's no longer just about software or technology. Um, certainly think it started there because as you pointed out, like that, that's an area of patenting that uh, has been under a lot of debate already. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly it starts with, is it an abstract idea at all? And we can't patent abstract ideas. So what are we doing here in the first place? Um, and actually, I've, I actually have uh, a, a much earlier paper on internet patent litigation uh, that started to come out of this and how much more of it there was. Um, and so certainly from a policy perspective, uh, you know, the case kind of needed to be taken up because folks were like, you know, we're getting overrun with these case, you know, with these these uh, litigation cases um, and and folks were getting very concerned about um you know, patent getting overrun by by patents that a probably shouldn't have existed in the first place, or at least by their mm-hmm. viewpoints, mm-hmm. Um, and that were basically you know taking up a ton of time and resources and efforts, and uh, you know even for startup companies maybe potentially making them making sure that uh, they can't exist because people were bringing patent suits that, that maybe just were frivolous or shouldn't have been there, and to some degree. That's half the debate that's going on about Alice in the first place is, are there, you know, internet trolls, uh, i.e. people, uh, you know, companies or organizations that have patents that don't produce anything per se, but Mm -hmm. are then trying to bring these frivolous lawsuits uh, based on the fact that they own a patent and they can defend it. And, you know, they may not be the original inventor on the patent. They probably just bought it or has a, have a portfolio of them. Uh, or, you know, uh, depending on how far out we take the definition of the word troll, because even that I would argue as, um, as a field we haven't exactly agreed on either. Um, but the notion of these frivolous lawsuits, definitely true, right? Because they just take up a ton of time. And so the idea behind... Uh, Alice providing sort of this two-step test that's very much clearer, and it's sort of the last word on the matter uh, in terms of, of the test itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people latched onto by saying, oh, good, now I have a way of trying to get rid of these frivolous lawsuits in court early, because you can bring uh, what's what's called, you know, what we call a 101 challenge under the Alice two-step test. Right. Um, you know, pretty early in a case. So before you get into discovery and before, you know, we get into Markman hearings or anything else, you can actually, you know, say, hey, you know, timeout, patents invalid. Um, and 101 just didn't used to be a section we claimed invalidity from uh, very often until this point. So, so it gave sort of a very, very early way of getting rid of all of this. Um, but I would argue that, as Alice started to get applied to broader technologies, so it's no longer just software that we're talking about. It's, it's been deemed that we can apply the Alice test um, from the case to, uh, you know, biotech and life sciences patents. Um, and this comes from, uh, you know, the Myriad case, which actually kind of knocks out uh, diagnostics. Um, and, you know, this, of course, had sort of an opposite reaction to uh, uh, from the life sciences and the biotech uh, sector, where they depend heavily on strong patent rights. Um, 
And so their reaction to Alice and what was, you know, what has now become a whole lot of lawsuits is sort of, you've weakened my, my patent rights, or now it's even harder to get them. Um, and this is now going to be a huge problem because it's now going to chill innovation in that particular area. Um, and so not great. Uh, but all of a sudden we start getting echoes of this same argument we have where uh, in patents where tech and IT are on one side and bio and, and life sciences are on the other arguing about, you know, strong or weak patents. And so I think that's actually why Alice got so much attention. Okay. Okay. That, uh, there's a lot there and it, uh, I think that, that historical summary certainly makes sense uh, to me. Now you mentioned that the ability to bring these challenges much earlier in litigation had a profound effect. You know, as you mentioned uh, before discovery or Markman hearings, so-called Markman hearings where the patent claims are construed, um, all of that takes time and money and you have to pay your lawyer and, and so on like that. So it raises the, uh, the transaction costs involved in litigation. And if you can, you know, sort of sidestep that in some sense, and use Alice to make an early legal challenge right at the heart of, you know, this patent doesn't even belong in the patent system under Section 101, then you're going to be able to get rid of cases much more uh, quickly. And to the extent that that has a disproportionately high filtering effect on frivolous claims, frivolous lawsuits, um, you know, society is going to be better off. So is it your sense that Alice has... Uh, significantly uh, done that, reshaped the procedure and structure uh, of patent litigation? Uh, or, you know, are, are there other things you think might be correspondingly and simultaneously responsible? Well, uh, I think, I think certainly Alice is starting to play a role. Um, you know, obviously we went from not seeing a whole lot of cases on one-on-one at all um, mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, now seeing I have, I have in my data set over 800 individual decisions, uh, involving one-on-one challenges. Um, now whether it's the case that these, these, uh, suits would have been brought otherwise, uh, cause obviously you can bring in invalidity claims under other sections, right? We can talk about novelty or obviousness or, or even, you know, written description, um, you know, but so it's possible that there is some intertwining between, uh, you know, a 101 challenge and other ways of becoming other ways of challenging invalidity. So uh, I, I'm not comfortable, uh, given the data that I've looked at so far, to say that, you know, there are now uh, cases that have been ending sooner because of Alice. Um, the study I did wasn't particularly causal. Um, but I, I do think that certainly it's a new, um, a new and very used, uh, method of now getting courts to consider invalidity, um, that we haven't seen before. Uh, I'll also make a distinction between, uh, what we're, we talk about in the paper, which is cases that actually go to the district courts, uh, versus what's going on at the PTAB. Um, and, and whether or not 101 challenges are actually stopping, uh, broad patents in their, in their tracks at, before they're even issued at the examination stage. Um, so it, it's actually possible that 101 is getting used far more there, 
but uh, that's not something uh, we've delved into our into our paper. So I don't want to go too far <laughs> down that road until I have more data and know know exactly what's going on on all stages. Um, oh, yeah, ex ante examination of patent applications before they're ever granted is certainly its own uh, world. And you know the the standards that are being set for ex post litigation uh, are in some sense. Uh, trying to to clean up, you know, some of the the problems that examination in a in an earlier day might have caused. So, to the extent that uh, Alice makes the 101 filter, the the patent eligibility screen, much more robust than it previously was, patents that were issued under that more lenient understanding of uh, eligibility uh, now pose a problem that probably won't. Uh, persist if Alice is applied vigorously. So let's let's now jump into uh, to that world of district court litigation uh, that uh, that you and Mark examined. Uh, what were some of the basic descriptive findings uh, that you think are most salient uh, when it comes to what's going on in the district courts with these Section 101 challenges? Oh yeah, absolutely. We we found out actually all sorts of fun stuff, um, and it, this is sort of the benefit of taking the time to actually look at the entire world uh, mm -hmm. and spend some time figuring out what is actually going on. And it's not just, you know, here are the arguments for our debate, um, but actually asking, okay, fine, these are your anecdotes, but what is the district court actually doing with Alice? Do they understand, you know, do they have a, a, a consistent way of, of using Alice or thinking about it? Uh, mm -hmm. Does it change over time? Um, and so, uh, what we, you know, what we were able to do, like I said, is is we we've been able to find pretty much every 101 decision in the district court and in the federal circuit, uh, including non-written opinions uh, mm -hmm. that rule on a 101 challenge. And so there are about 800 of them in the intervening five years after Alice, which is pretty significant. Um, you know, <clears throat> given that you know. We have what you know, a couple thousand patent cases every year. Um, but you know what what's going on is uh, a couple of things. So one is um, that if I just kind of look on average, uh, more than half of all the decisions re result in a finding of invalidity. So about sixty three percent of of the decisions that we have in the district court and the federal circuit um, do end up with some finding of invalidity. Uh, for at least one of the patents. So, you know, obviously one of the complications for doing this kind of stuff is, are we only looking at one patent or are we looking at a portfolio? Um, right. So that's the first thing is, is if you are finding yourself in general, on average, looking at a 101 challenge, uh, you have a better, better than even odds of getting at least one of your patents invalidated. Um, not great, <laughs> but perhaps it is depending on who it is. Um, the other thing we kind of figured out, we found out was really interesting is that the federal circuit actually has a, you know, pretty strong role in these invalidity decisions. So, you know, about 25% of our district court findings uh, actually were appealed to the federal circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and the federal circuit just affirms everything. 91% of the cases that go to them on 101 challenges were affirmed. Wow. Yeah, uh, it's it's actually quite astonishing. 
Um, and because the majority of the cases that go to the federal circuit are, are people arguing over invalidity, it means that basically 90% of the, the cases, um, uh, you know, or 90% of the cases that the federal circuit sees are still invalidated. Um, and so they're kind of like, okay, you know, district courts are going to do what the district courts are going to do. And the federal circuit kind of sits down and says, okay, we're going to go with it. And, and from other research I've seen, the federal circuit does tend to, uh, uh, you know, does tend to sort of affirm a lot of these kinds of, of claims. Um, but it's actually really, it, you know, it's actually one of those things where it's sort of like, well, that is something that the federal circuit's been doing, re- you know, uh, on average. However, over time, uh, more and more cases that go get appealed to the federal circuit actually are becoming uh, elig- eligible or premature decisions, what, what I'll call sort of not invalid decisions uh, <laughs> for, for, for ease of use here. Um, and oh, ever since, uh, you know, the Berkheimer case in early 2018, where basically Berkheimer kind of came out and said, uh, well, uh, if, you know, we don't want to, you know, overly throw patents out too early in a case. So if there is any, you know, reason that you think that there are facts at issue in the case or any other reason that, um, you know, maybe you should hang on to uh, a one-on-one claim and not actually claim it invalid or deem it invalid, excuse me, um, then maybe you should just hang on to it and just say, just push it down the road. So, so maybe save it for a summary judgment motion later. Um, and then what, st- what started to happen is, is uh, the federal circuit started to see more of these not invalid uh, applications and they're affirming those as well. So their, uh, you know, their uh, invalidity rate actually has been dropping over time. Um, and so that's sort of the element of, you know, making it a little harder to throw, throw these one-on-one cases out, uh, recently. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you pointed out, uh, a lot of probably what we are likely doing is kind of, you know, cleaning up what was going on before, uh, one-on-one claims became more popular. Uh, and so what we may be seeing from the invali- invalidity cases is a lot of, uh, patents that were issued before uh, Alice that are now coming to court, uh, you know, uh, to <clears throat> uh, now coming to court in order to be able to uh, say, no, actually, these are invalid. These should have never been issued in the first place. Um, and it's sort of all the low hanging fruit. Right. But as we get you know, further down the line, cases get harder and the patents are now been written after Alice and, and they're going to be harder to determine because, you know, Patent attorneys are smart. <laughs> they, 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 they now understand, oh, maybe if we write these things a little differently, um, we won't run into these one-on-one challenges anymore. Um, and so that's going to be an interesting thing to track over time. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, it may actually lead the patent actually to be valid. <laughs> well, um, and that's just it, right? Like, how can you, you know, that's always a great question is we do the best we can, right? As examiners right. And, and, you know, as lawyers and as patent experts, you know, what truly is a valid patent and is it, 
is it language that in the way it gets written that allows things to go through? Is it, you know, it, it, you know, how, do, how does one determine something's too broad, for example? Um, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do here. It's just not, it's more of an art than a science, say, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, we had a couple of other really interesting findings too, um, is, is uh, as you might imagine, 101 challenges are primarily uh, an IT and software phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90% of our decisions are in that field. So even though more and more often Alice is getting applied to other areas like bio and life sciences, or yeah, now yeah. you're starting to see some like actual mechanical um, cases, although there are only a handful of those so far, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's moving. But the, the roots of Alice in technology is still mm-hmm. very prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and then sort of the last thing and one of the coolest things I think about this paper is because uh, a lot of this other information has has kind of already been floating out there in the ether um, is we were actually able to take all of these decisions that we, we, we found and match them to a database that um, Mark Lemley and Sean Miller have been working on for years uh, called the Stanford NPE litigation database. And what what, uh, their team has been able to do is take every patent litigation case um, and assign a category to the patent owner in the case. So we can actually tell which, uh, you know, which patent owners, uh, be they, you know, product companies, so people who own the patents but actually make something. Uh, some form of non-practicing entity or NPE, so maybe an organization that, you know, licenses, owns patents, but only licenses or doesn't particularly make anything, um, you know, are, are uh, actually pretty equally represented uh, over these cases. So, so about 45% of them are product companies. Um, and, uh, and 55% of them are sort of this broader NPE category. But what I found really fascinating, um, and I think is sort of a, a key point of our paper, is, is that when we only think about uh, patent owners in terms of product companies and in terms of uh, NPEs, or uh, if I break it down further, uh, patent assertion entities, um, mm-hmm. which are, are the organizations I would argue people tend to think more about as being a troll. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, so those PAEs, so those patent assertion entities that just collect patents and tend to assert them in court, um, are 28%. But the other huge portion of this are individual owners and individually owned companies who own the patents. And that, they make 20, up 23% of the database. Um, but that's, that's particularly interesting, right? Because we we frequently find differences among industries when it comes to patent policy, um, in terms of you know the number of claims or how large uh, the median portfolio might uh, might be, or the number of patents that are necessary to cover a feature or a product in this industry versus that other one, um, and those industry differences, while salient are sort of separate and sideways to the other point, which is um, who the actual owners themselves are and individual inventors, individual uh, inventors and small businesses. 
um, particularly you know in in the patent system, enjoy uh, sort of preferential treatment. So you you talk a little bit in the paper about entity status uh, for for patent law purposes. What does that term uh, mean, and how did your findings break out along this dimension? Uh, well, thank you. That's a that's a great question. Um, and and basically, when we talk about entity status in the paper, uh, we are really trying to break this out into uh, you know who actually is getting challenged, right? So so when a one hundred and one challenge is brought uh, for invalidity, it's often brought by uh, uh, if we assume a normal case, it's actually brought by the defendant, right? Uh, that says, hey, you know, I'm getting sued by, you know, PAE company. Um, and uh, I think that their patents are um, invalid. Mm-hmm. Right. But it means that it's the PAE company that's the owner. Um, and so what we're trying to figure out is, uh, given that the debate a lot was about, hey, we want to like tamp down these NPEs or these, these patent trolls in, uh, in IT, in that industry, or, mm-hmm. hey, um, I'm a bio company, but I'm really worried uh, about, you know, having my patent rights weakened. Well, bio companies, you know, don't tend to have these trolls as often and certainly not in our, in our database. So instead, what you're seeing there is you actually get product companies there. And so now what we're looking at is, oh, actually, who owns the patent really is going to matter for uh, why we care at all about this debate or this, this, this argument. And so what we want to do is kind of break down entities into mutually exclusive but meaningful groups. And what we realize through our data and, and understanding sort of the, the arguments that are going behind this is that we actually really care about uh, a set of product companies who own patents, mm-hmm. you know, so you can think about those like your big five biopharma companies or, you know, uh, IBM or Apple. Um, and then we want to, you know, break it down further into, uh, you know, which companies uh, are actually, you know, just licensing or just asserting patents. So it's a different entity type. Um you know, and that, and, and then we can also then break it down further into, hey, maybe as an individual person, or uh, so. And the way we define that is, it's you know the person's name who is on, who is named as the plaintiff, people person bringing the suit is also the inventor on the patent, um, or the company that's on the patent um, is associated with this particular individual. Um, and, uh, that, that small company owned by the individual is named as the plaintiff in the suit. So we're talking real small businesses here. Um, and then we can, you know, further dice it out as we did in the, in the, uh, in, in our regressions in the paper, uh, into, we can also think about universities being sort of a separate entity as well. Um, because, yeah. you know. There are plenty of universities who patent, especially in the U.S., given Beidou, which I believe it's the uh, anniversary of right now, too. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. We're, we're right at the 40-year mark of, uh, of the Beidou Act. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, these are, these are some quite important distinctions among entity type apart from industry. So that's, that's great to, to clarify. And then, uh, as you point out, there were... Outcomes in the district court versus those that eventually wound up in the federal circuit, which of course were not all of them. Um, 
now you've taken these findings, these sort of descriptive findings, um, which we've now discussed in uh, uh, sort of piecemeal fashion, but you took them all together and did some pretty sophisticated regression analysis, logit regression, these kinds of things. Um, so before we turn to that, uh, let's talk data because you know a pretty substantial uh, chunk of the paper initially delves into how you collected the data, coded the variables. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, um, but now that we know a little bit about what it is you were evaluating and you know this very broad look you were uh, you were taking, um, can you summarize what kind of data it is you gathered for those research questions? Oh, absolutely. And you know me, I can talk about data all day. So <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this, this is the, the beauty of the, my background. Um, so what we did here is, is uh, one of the things I love best about legal research. So there's, there's plenty of great information uh, that you can get by, you know, thinking about big data. We hear a lot about, you know, natural language processing, things like that. But what we actually did in this case was pretty old school. Um, in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things, where um, uh, I really did go through uh, all of Westlaw, um, uh, LexisNexis, um, and um, uh, taking advantage of sort of uh, Lex Machina, uh, which we have access to, uh, which has basically all of the PACER documents uh, that mm-hmm. uh I was able to go through, I created a, a search string, which is in the paper, you know, uh, that basically asked, you know, show me all the decisions uh, that talk about Section 101 um, and that also mention uh, Alice or one of the other cases. Uh, and from there, we were able to get sort of a long list of all of the potential decisions uh, that actually involved a, a, a 101 challenge and sort of a dip- dispositive decision from the court um, on that challenge. Um, and what it allowed me to do was, was you know, basically put together almost, you know, 1,400 of these decisions. Uh, and then, yeah, we actually went through and we read every last one of them to see whether or not it actually just mentioned 101 or there was a real decision there. So that's what I mean by old school. It's been a while since uh, we've done a lot of this hand coding. Um, but what it allows you to, but that kind of uh, research allows you to do a couple of things. One is, is certainly, um, you know, I have great confidence in the database we were actually able to put together, right? Because I've read it all. Um, but it also allowed me to really understand sort of what was going on, what kinds of challenges and decisions were being made and how they've kind of changed over time, which gives you a much better sense of what it is you even need to look for in the first place and what kinds of variables are going to matter. Um, you know, and the only thing that, that gets a little dicey when you look at things through Westlaw, um, you know, or LexisNexis or any of these other companies that tend to publish is, uh, you know, there's sort of a known, um, bias uh, towards things that are not published, for example, which is why we had to turn to Lex Machina and, and Pacer. Um, but those those kinds of decisions are much harder to find. So one of the things that we did to verify everything we did um, is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, understanding sort of what was going on in Alice decisions has been in the ether for a while. Uh, and so there are actually a number of companies and a number of groups that have tried to put together their own lists um, of every decision that they were able to find, especially early. 
And so I was then able to take everything I had where we already pre-coded, okay, what, you know, which patents were there? Uh, is this an actual decision? What was the outcome? Um, but then go back and say, okay, does this match what everybody else has been saying? Does it match sort of the other descriptives that we've seen? Um, you know, and can I triangulate around areas? Am I missing anything? And so, um, you know, we collected probably about five or six different kinds of these lists uh, to do the cross-verification of. Um, and for the most part, we agreed. Um, there were definitely, you know, as with all things that, that require some, some, uh, some, you know, subjective uh, viewpoints, uh, you know, you have to kind of think about, all right, why was this decision made? Was it a mistake? Are we interpreting this differently? Um, and so my theory on it was, as long as most things were uh, verified, uh, then the few things that, that we, we disagreed on often were, um, we actually agreed on one outcome, but then I read further, realized actually uh, they ruled that way on one patent, but not that way on other patents. And so things just got missed. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm pretty confident now that our database is fully comprehensive, um, covers all the right outcomes. Um, and then what we were able to do is once we were confident in sort of the set, um, we took a look and said, okay, so what are the key things that are going on in the cases that we read? And what are the key things that are part of uh, the conversation? that we want our data to address. Yeah. Um, and that's where we started coming up with, okay, so now we also need to understand, um, you know, what industry are these cases in? Um, and so again, a lot of that was sort of determined by, um, you know, uh, seeing where other groups had placed them because certain uh, groups had actually already listed an industry for them. Uh, Mark and I went through everything too and said, yeah, you know, read the patents and said, yep, okay, this is, you know, tech, this is, this is bio. Um, and we took a look at sort of, uh, you know, the classification systems for the patents uh, when we could uh, to kind of, uh, you know, kind of determine the broad categories that we had chosen. Um, and then the last thing we knew we needed uh, was, was to then match those to, to the, the NPE database so that we could get, you know, who the patent owners actually were in those cases and so that we could come up with sort of our own sort of more uh, little broader categories since, you know, we don't have a ton of data, so you don't want 80 billion categories, um, uh, then you don't get a lot of information out of that. Um and it took us a while to figure out exactly which categories were the, you know, most informative ones while still being correct. Um, and so, but, but that's actually where we figured out that it wasn't that, you know, going back to your original question when we started all of this is, oh, hey, you know, we actually sort of expected to find that, yeah, it's, you know, Alice is doing a good job of, of uh, um, you know, dealing with NPEs or, or, or other patent trolls. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, that's when we figured out, oh, no, there's a whole third group that no one ever talks about. And so that's those individuals. Okay. So let's, let's turn then to the, the results of your, your regression. Now, you used Logit, um, of course, because the outcome uh, of, of the patent uh, validity question is binary, and Logit is great for, for determining that. Um, the various explanatory variables that we now sort of understand um, were all inputs into it. So what did your, your regressions and robustness checks and so on uh, sort of show you? Well, so this is the amazing thing about this paper. 
right? Is is some days you go in with a hypothesis that says, uh, you know, we want to answer this question. We think that that it's going to be the case that in IT cases we're going to see NPEs uh, getting their patents invalidated uh, a lot more than, and actually, I'll be very specific here, uh, PAEs, so the patent assertion entities, we would think would end up being uh, invalidated a lot more often as compared to product companies or anything else. Um, And the beauty of our regression is we don't see that at all. We see something completely different, which is it's actually the individuals controlling for all else that are far more likely to be invalidated or have their patents invalidated um, than uh, product companies or NPEs, and and so uh, and 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 it's a lot too. So so you know, uh, logits logits have have terrible coefficients to interpret. So so uh, you know, I try to put everything in terms of uh, average marginal effects, so we can see sort of holding everything else as observed. What is the likelihood that um, the, what's the, what's the, the the increase of the probability that you as in our case, an individual is going to get this, this invalid outcome. And Mm -hmm. what ends up happening here is that um, uh, if you are an individual, your likelihood of getting invalidated at, at a 101 challenge goes up by 14 percentage points over all else. Um, And, you know, in pure raw numbers, basically individuals get invalidated 73% of the time. And that's in comparison product companies who only uh, get invalidated about 50% of the time. So close to even odds Um, and all other NPEs. So this could be PAs, universities, everything else, um, you know, get invalidated 64% of the time. Um, and that 73% for individuals is statistically significantly different than the other two groups. Yeah. But what we don't see is we don't really see that, uh, or I don't have really strong evidence that NPEs fare sort of any worse than a product company, especially in IT cases. Um, even after we control for everything else, like, uh, you know, is this a software IT case, uh, which is, as we point out, far more likely to get invalidated. Um, is it uh, a decision that is in the federal circuit, which also is more likely to be invalidated? Um, and I actually put in a whole bunch of other controls for how familiar you are with the patent, the patent litigation system, right? So, you know, do you assert a lot? As, as a patent asserter, do you, have you seen a lot of 101 cases? Um, do you have a patent portfolio that's at issue in this case, which individuals often can't have? So I control for all of that. Um, and individuals, you know, still come out worse. NPEs and, and product companies don't seem to fare that differently. And it's not, uh, we don't see a ton of evidence that, you know, certainly from the court's perspective, that bio cases are, uh, you know, impact, you know, should impact innovation in any way. There are so few of them. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other things happening at the PTAB and and, and stuff like that. And I leave that for, for sort of a different, a different study. But the takeaway here is sort of twofold. You know, one is that, um, sometimes the debates we hear miss a voice that is actually the one getting harmed the most. Mm-hmm. 
right? Indivi- you don't hear about the individual's uh, viewpoint on the the patent eligibility uh, conversation, certainly not as loudly as you hear IT or bio companies. Right. Um, and then the other thing is sort of, great, so this is happening, but is this a good or a bad thing? Um, and so there's a very, uh, very distinct paper that needs to be written after this is sort of what's going on with individuals. Um, so, you know, why yeah, are they getting invalidated so often? Yeah, let's, let's explore that a little bit. Cause I mean, this is the sort of thing you've, you've pointed out, you know, product companies versus PAEs. That's a distinction you would expect Alice to have a lot to say about, but you don't actually see uh, a tremendous difference there. Um, you weren't expecting to see much in the way of this different segment of the population individuals. It was primarily going to be a story about IT versus life sciences. And that expectation is also sort of turned on its head. Um, uh, what, do we, what do we do with this uh, as a matter of policy intervention? What, what interventions do you think these findings might uh, support uh, or at least, you know, invite further attention to when it comes to crafting um, examination policy, litigation policy, you know, patent doctrine, uh, and and so on. Uh, and that's that's a great question. And and as you know, all good uh, as 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 uh, all good economists will sit down and say, uh, well, you know, I think we might need a little more data before I come up with with you know solid <laughs> policy uh, uh, prescriptions here. Because again, our our data here was designed to be descriptive, and so before you can even figure out what the policies should be, uh, you need to even acknowledge that there's there, there's this problem in the first place. So this paper is designed to show you there's a hole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at a bare minimum, uh, you know, individuals do individual patent holders. And most of these, by the way, are uh, IT software folks. You don't see many individuals in, in life sciences for obvious reasons. Right. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like these folks need to be part of this conversation. It's not about two, you know, monolithic, you know, huge groups that have different viewpoints on, 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 uh, Patent holding individuals actually, whether they they be IT or mechanical processes or anything else, you know, have mm-hmm. a very different viewpoint on why they get patents and how they deal with them. For many individuals, uh, you know, this could be their livelihood. Right? This is the business they've decided to run. This is their full time job. You know, they don't have a portfolio of patents or not a big one. This is kind of it. Um, and so, you know, they protect them. Uh, and, and they need, you know, and they, they need to make sure that if, if indeed their inventions are patentable and they are valid, that they, you know, don't get thrown out for other spurious reasons. So if nothing else, A, we need to start inviting, you know, the individual groups, uh, uh, you know, into the conversation, into the debates. Let, let's find out what they even think. Um, but in terms of, you know, what policies could we implement? I kind of want to understand a little better, um, and like I said, I think I think this is the sort of the next great follow-on project to this, is sort of why are the individuals getting invalidated at these much higher rates? Um, it's not just because there are fewer of them. Like I said, it is statistically significantly different. So um, it's not just there aren't a whole lot of them, and so we're just seeing noise. It really is that individuals have something different. 
And so the issue kind of becomes this is, is it the case that individuals are different because their patents are just worse in some way, right? Are they too broad? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there's some, there's some evidence behind that being a possibility. For example, you know, if we think about innovators as creators, as, as, or as creatives, uh, creative people have been uh, highly shown to overvalue their own work. Right. So I'm willing to fight for something harder, even if it's not great, because I created it. Um, and if that's the case, well, then maybe Alice is actually doing its job. Right. If we're just getting terrible patents that, that, are, that are being asserted in ways that, that you know, should have never been allowed to happen in the first place. All right. Alice was meant to, you know, deal with, you know, larger PAEs, but maybe we're dealing with the individuals at least. But it is not my sense that most individuals are behaving, quote unquote, like trolls. It's not to say that there aren't some that exist out there. Um, but from my read of these, that's not what's going on. So, mm-hmm. okay. So what, what other options are there? Well, now if it's more of a, maybe individuals don't know the patent system as well as product companies or PAs. you know, people who, you know, have a lot of patents, who deal with it more often. Um, Individuals, individuals don't have as many resources as these larger companies, so they don't play in the space as often. Maybe they don't have as good a representation. Um, maybe they don't know what's going on uh, as, as well as or, or how to direct how a patent should be written um, as well as some of these other companies might. And, and certainly, I know from my experience working with uh, you know entrepreneurial ventures from some of my other research, um, mm-hmm. It's absolutely the case that one of the things that founders just do not understand as well is the patent system. Um, and so it they just might be at a disadvantage, in which case, you know, Alice is hammering people who maybe perhaps a little unfair. Um, and this may not be an Alice specific problem, but it does mean as a policy implication that uh, we need to find ways for the patent system to be more accessible to innovators or people who don't interact with it quite as often so that, you know, when we get to court, it's it's not a lack of experience or a lack of understanding about how something needs to be written or done mm-hmm. uh, that's really harming them. Now, until I understand the mechanisms, a little hard to say exactly which is the way to go, but, but it, it makes a strong case for figuring out, you know, what's going on with, for these people. Absolutely, and uh, and it's interesting you point out these uh, these considerations about or these potential explanations at least of resource constraints, um, you know, a, a lack of um, sophistication, you might say, when it comes to dealing with uh, with these legal issues, these uh, these policy issues, representation, all of these things, which play a role in whether you get a patent, whether the patent you get is of high and defensible quality. Uh, incidentally, all of those considerations also play a role in the political process, right? As a former USPTO advisor, I can certainly, um, you know, recall instances where I was sitting across from the table and learning from, uh, you know, the the trade representative of a very large, well-funded, uh, you know, industry association, uh, as well as individuals who were they were speaking on their own behalf and and not many others. And their experience was different, their resources were different, and their voice as a result in crafting policy, which would then go on to have these other effects in court um, 
or in the legislative or or policy administrative policy process um, was also quite uh, quite a salient difference. So it sounds like you're calling for more research, which I'm certainly all for, and potentially for <laughs> for more uh, policy attention uh, paid to these kinds of uh, these potential resource constraints, uh, which I appreciate as well. So let's uh, let's sort of in closing. Uh, consider one final question. Uh, based on these findings, other empirical research that's going on in the field and research still to come, as you've uh, so tantalizingly promised, um, <laughs> what do you think will be uh, the respective roles of Congress and and the USPTO? Because you know, Alice is, at least for the time being, the Supreme Court's final word on this. And the Supreme Court has since denied certiorari on a number of follow-up uh, cases to hopefully clarify or reshape eligibility. So for the moment, at least the Supreme Court seems satisfied with what uh, their involvement has been. So now the ball is back in the 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 court of Congress and and the USPTO, the political branches. What do you think their respective roles might be when it comes to articulating the eligibility boundaries of the patent system? And in other words, how might the political branches become uh, better consumers of the research that you and others are producing. Uh, and that's a that's a that's a great question. Um, and I've sort of been part of the rest of the earlier part of my my, my career is is trying to uh, you know help Congress uh, you know uh, understand and recognize that this research is out there, but you know in a more approachable way. Uh, one of the reasons I, I really appreciate this kind of podcast is, is you know, we write in a very particular voice, uh, but policy is written in a different one. Um, and, and so making things clearer, certainly on behalf of researchers, I think is, is a way we can begin to help Congress, um, you know, understand sort of what it is that we're trying to say, despite the fact that, you know, we often have a lot of nuance in, in our research. Um, that, that maybe doesn't get translated as well. But I think that, you know, certainly from the perspective of a patent owner uh, in, in these particular cases is one of the you know, major roles that, that has to come out of, of Congress and the PTO. And I think, I think the PTO is trying to do a better job right now than, than, than you know, Congress has been addressing directly is getting some actual clarity around what 101 should be. Because uh, again, it's, it's, you know, it's those two terms that we started to begin with right, at the beginning of this conversation with. And what is an abstract idea and what is an inventive step? Right? If we're going to keep this test, right? because that's you know, what the Supreme Court has given us, um, and, and the courts are just having a really difficult time you know, coming up with anything consistent. Um, and so from the PTO's perspective, I know all the time that they are coming out with, uh, you know, particular directives for, for their, um, you know, particular directives for, for their examiners. Here's kind of what we mean, uh, or here's what we think we mean. But, you know, the PTO is still held to what the laws are and how the courts interpret it. So they can only do so much, I think. Um, so I think we're, we're back to, okay. Well, Congress, you know, gave us the AIA. They are capable of, of, of trying to clarify things. Um, and so I think it's time for, for us to have a serious conversation about um, instead of letting the courts kind of give us this piecemeal 
what do we actually mean by patent eligibility? What, 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 you know, can we draw some bright line, you know, examples and descriptions and, you know, can we come up with agreeable definitions, um, you know, of these ideas of abstract idea or inventive step as it applies to patent eligibility? Um, obviously that's a very broad statement. Um, and it's part of why the debates rage so much is, is I think it's very difficult to get, you know, all three, you know, all sides to actually agree on what that should mean. Since depending on how we define it, certain people will come out of this better than others. Um, you know, so I'm not saying it's an easy, it's an easy story, but I think, I think, uh, you know, having more voices involved in the discussions, um, whether they come to testify to Congress, which I, I know, you know, happened uh, sort of at the end of last year, for sure, um, as part of a way to kind of deal with this. I know Congress has been trying, um, and I, you know, COVID, COVID has uh, uh, changed a lot of our plans uh, <laughs> at the end of last year. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to get back to some of this uh, after the more serious concerns of COVID are over. Um, but I think I think we do need to, you know, narrow down what is it that the actual problems are, uh, where is the confusion coming from, and kind of trying to focus our conversations about those areas first. Let's see if we can't clean up some of the confusion. Um, and then, it, you know, one, I'm a firm believer of, you know, the more we can clean up uncertainty, the easier it is then to, you know, apply particular rules. And then, of course, things will always come up. There will always be something different. But at least we all know where we're starting from, which I think here we don't even know that. Um, and so I think I think that that's a, a way to at least begin the conversation um, to supply. And, and in addition, be able to supply, uh, you know, the decision makers with concrete data like we did here. But, you know, with a story. Right. You know, we I can produce all the data in the world, but if there's no particular story, if there's no particular way to say either, hey, I understand that this is the story you wanted to tell, but it's not right because the data doesn't support it. Or if it's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, hey, the data actually is suggesting that there are entirely other voices that we're ignoring, uh, you know, as researchers, we need to find a way to, uh, you know, through more public engagement uh, either directly with the Hill or through podcasts like this, or, or plenty of people who, who, who uh, simplify their research uh, for public consumption in tweets, like all of these kinds of things, I think will be helpful for the long term, um, uh, you know, the long term fixing of some of this uncertainty. Terrific. Well, that's a, a hopeful note on which to end. Um, thanks so much for, for coming on, Sam, and, and discussing. I really enjoyed this paper, and I think it'll. It'll add a lot to the discussion over uh, patent eligibility and, and our patent system. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Great. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, this paper is uh, now accepted for publication and a draft, I believe, is available on SSRN. So uh, I'll include a link to that paper in its full form on the liner notes. Uh, our guest today was Samantha Zients, postdoctoral research fellow in IP at Stanford Law School and a fellow of the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford. The paper, Does Alice Target Patent Trolls? I encourage you all to read it. It is, uh, it is really sensible and, uh, and, and comprehensive analysis. Uh, thanks again and uh, take care.